Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Thank you for your uh, singing with gusto this morning. I appreciated that very, very much. Well, this morning we are starting a, a new series that I admit that I'm uh, approaching with a little fear and trepidation. It's been over 20 years plus since I tried to preach any kind of series in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Revelation's the, the last book of the Bible, in case you didn't know that. And it's probably the most controversial book in the New Testament. It's, it's a book that's very difficult and hard to understand. There's a lot of symbolism and it's a lot of prophetic imagery and, and very figurative language. And, you know, is he talking about something that's happening now? Is he talking about something that happened in the past? Is he talking about something that will take place in the future? What, what is Revelation? And not only that, what's its relevance to our lives today? If it's all future stuff or all stuff that took place in the past, how does it make a difference in my life today? And so all of this is, is just really, 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 really confusing. In fact, the, the old uh, joke is this. You've probably heard me say it, and I know my growth group has heard it. But, you know, everybody in the church wants the preacher to preach on Revelation because they don't understand it. And none of the preachers I know want to preach on Revelation because they don't understand it. And so it just kind of works like that. It's just a very difficult passage of Scripture to read. But that being said, the book of Revelation is inspired by God, and it's something that we need to look at and listen to and hear today. It has a message for us today. And so over the course of this year, we're going to spread out different times where we'll look at it for several weeks in a row and then go look at some other things, and we'll come back to Revelation. And, and by the time this, this church year is over, we will have gone through all of the book of Revelation. And, it, and it's a book that says that there's a blessing if you read it and listen to what it says. And so it's, it's important that we take the time to read and study Revelation. But I need to tell you that there's another deeper, darker secret as to why I've struggled with wanting to preach Revelation and why I'm a little hesitant today. Because it's, it's often treated as a gimmick, this book, for pastors, for evangelists. If you talk about the end times and you start speculating about who is the Antichrist, what is the mark of the beast, what is the one world government? What is the one world religion that Revelation seems to suggest and talk about? Who is that? And there's all this speculation. Everybody's wondering. And it gets very dramatic and it's very exciting and it's very interesting. And it sounds like you're just reading from a teleprompter on a news broadcast. You can look at it that way. And for many, many people, it's just exciting to go and hear about all this stuff in prophecy because it's just so fascinating and it's so exciting. There's nothing wrong with that. It just, it's often something that we preachers use as a gimmick to get people to come in and hear what's going on. I don't want to do that. Now, the problem with me is that it's still the Word of God and it still needs to be taught, and I just need to make sure that I'm doing it with the right motives and that you're here with the right motives too, and that the right motives are, God, we want to hear your Word and we want to learn what you have to say and we want to follow you. We have a curiosity about the future. We wonder what you're going to do, and we wonder how that makes a difference in our life today. 
And so here am I, Lord. Teach me and help me go do what you've called me to do. And so now that I've kind of had my little confessional here this morning and told you about all this stuff, I hope that you'll be able to get your Bible out now and join me on this journey as we explore the book of Revelation. If you want to know what Revelation is really all about, here it is in two words. Christ wins. That's the summation of what the book of Revelation is really all about. Christ wins. The victory that He achieved on the cross and His resurrection and His ascension into glory, that gets applied to the rest of human history and to all the events of the future until finally every single one of His enemies is permanently, eternally vanquished and banished to their destruction. And the people of God who follow Jesus and trust in Him, they experience life and joy and blessing and peace and His presence for all eternity because of the victory that Jesus Christ has won. So really, if you want to know what Revelation, its, its central message is just simply this, Christ wins. Now you see Him winning as a judge, judging His church, judging the nations. You see him coming as a conquering king. You see him in his royalty and authority, vanquishing the enemies of, of God and of his kingdom. You see him as the master recreator, rebuilder, making a new heaven and a new earth, new Jerusalem, where there's no more crying and sorrow, where there's no more death and destruction, where there's no more evil and violence, but there's peace and there's joy and there's life eternally in his presence. No more sorrow, no more pain, because we're in His presence. And you see Jesus doing these things. So as He's the judge, and as he, He's the conquering King, and He's the recreator of, of this creation, making it all brand new, taking away the curse, taking away sin, taking away disease and death and destruction, taking away all those things and making all things new, we see that Jesus wins. He sets everything that's wrong right. Every enemy is destroyed. And Jesus wins. That's what Revelation's all about in a nutshell. Now our problem is, is that when we read this book and we read and, and study it, we get excited about all the details. And so we wonder about who are those ten nations that they're talking about and what is that beast with those weird horns and who is the harlot, that, that prostitute that's riding on the back of one of the beasts and what is this religion that she has? Is it, is it Islam? Is it Catholicism? Is it some other world religion? What is it? And, and is it a revival of the Roman Empire or is it something new? And, and what's going on here? What is happening? And it's easy to focus on these little details that are just characters and little plot points in the story and forget that really the climax is that Jesus wins. That's what we're called to learn and understand today. Now throughout history... People have read the book of Revelation and they've interpreted it in basically four big schools of interpretation. They've tried to understand what it is. There are those on the one hand who read the book of Revelation and they say this is all historical. They say it's historical. In fact, some even say everything that's written in the book of Revelation, it was fulfilled by 70 AD in the first century with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And they hold that view and, and there are others that 
take that view and maybe carry a little further and they say, well, no, it's, it's, the, it's the fall of the Roman Empire and it's the invasion of Islam and the, and the Goths and, the, and the, you know, the, the hordes that came from the north and conquered Rome and then there's Charlemagne and then there's Napoleon and then there's Hitler and World War II. And, and they look at all these historical events and they say, these are the things that are predicted in the book of Revelation. So that's kind of a historical viewpoint. The problem is, is that whenever you start assigning these different current events to a, a prophetic timeline, it's kind of arbitrary. And you're not sure that you're making the right one-to-one correspondence. So I'm not sure that that historical view is completely accurate because I kind of think some things definitely have a forward look and a prophetic look and stuff that hasn't happened yet, even though there are terrible, catastrophic things that have occurred here on planet Earth. It just seems a bit arbitrary, the assigning of, well, these 10 things must be these 10 nations that are alive right now. Okay, so that's the futurist view. The opposite extreme of that is, that's, excuse me, the historical view. The opposite extreme of that is the futurist view. The future's view is everything's future. It's all predictive. None of these things have become to, have been, have started to unfold. They're all in the future. And I need to tell you that that's kind of the camp that Littlestown Chapel is in. And, and most evangelical, fundamental Bible-believing Christians here, at least in, in North America, we're, we're in that camp mostly, that it's all future. And so we're looking at the rise of a world dictator. We're looking for this world religion and these uh, other uh, totalitarian worldwide empires and things like that and, and all these different plagues and, and, and displays of the wrath of God. And that's all future things. We, we look at it as future things and we, we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, and we want Jesus to come back. The return of Christ is something future. And I need to say that something has always bothered me about this view, even though I believe that, is that when we focus so much on the future, we forget how is it relevant today. And, and how would it have been relevant to the people in the first century that are reading this a few decades after Christ's death and resurrection? How would it really help them if it was actually two millennia later these things are taking place at the earliest? How, how would it help them as they were going through persecution there in first century under Nero? How would it help them as they went through persecution at the end of the first century uh, by the Romans and the Jews? How, how, how would it have, have, have helped them if it's all totally futuristic? So then there are those who split the difference and they say, you know what, this is just a story. It's an allegory. It's, it's something that we should read spiritually. Uh, they have kind of a very idealistic view about the book of Revelation. It's really just an illustration of the battle of good against evil. And so we see Jesus the King coming and marching and He's judging evil and He's fighting against evil and He wins and He conquers and good is ultimately going to overcome evil. And this is wonderful. And so all the future events about the millennial kingdom and such as that, those are just, those are just things that you should interpret figuratively. It's not going to be a literal thousand-year kingdom where Jesus is present on earth. It's something that's happening now as the gospel spreads and more and more people trust in Christ. And so they, they look at it that way, this very idealized view. But there are problems with that view as well because there are things that are described in this book that are in this book of Revelation that are so clear and so specific that, that it would be very difficult just to say it's a spiritual 
to be interpreted spiritually. You wonder how would it really give hope to somebody, especially someone struggling in the first century or someone in North Korea today that's living for their faith but they're imprisoned. How, how would it give hope to them if it's just a, an over, oh, don't, don't worry, good's going to win. How would that really help them if, if Jesus isn't really coming back and really executing his judgment and really bringing about and making all things new? I personally think that there are historical things in the book of Revelation, and there are definitely future things in the book of Revelation. And there is some of this idea of good fighting evil in the book of Revelation. There's things that we can take from all three views. We don't have to buy any one of them by themselves. So maybe we need to be more eclectic, you know, just be willing to blend some things together and learn from it and hold on to our, the, our future hope but recognize that some of these things have already taken place even in the parts that are hard to understand that maybe God is just trying to say, hold on, don't give up, hang in there. Christ wins. That's our hope. That's what we need to hold to. Okay. So why don't we dive in and start reading through the book of Revelation. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the Revelation to John. It says it's on page 1028. 1028. Last book of the Bible. And uh, if you find the maps, you went too far. Okay, I'm just letting you know that. All right. The Revelation of John. And I'd like to read the first eight verses to you. Would you listen carefully, please? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, to show his, gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of, on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. In these opening verses of chapter 1, John is writing a prologue that introduces this letter, this book, this prophecy of the future, and he's writing it to a group of churches that will be introduced in verses 9 and following. We'll see that next week when we read together. If you come and are with us, you'll see it too. 
And as he introduces this, he's showing us what is this book all about? What is John trying to write? What is he trying to accomplish? What, did, what was God's plan as he gave this message to John? And John, in turn, gave it to us. Well, I want you to notice in the very first verse, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation is a, a Greek word. It's where we get our English word apocalypse. Apocalypse. It's actually apocalypsis is the Greek word that's used there, apocalypse. And the problem with the word apocalypse is that whenever you think of an apocalypse, you think of some catastrophic disaster into the world type of thing, you know, like the zombie apocalypse or something like that, that, you know, this is just some terrible disease has wiped out humanity and there's just a few survivors and all the cities are destroyed, wars have destroyed everything, natural disasters have destroyed everything, and it's a very dystopian idea of the future. And so that's, that's often what we think of when we think of apocalypse. I remember a couple years ago when the stink bugs were really prevalent and they said it's like a biblical apocalypse, all these stink bugs getting into our houses and, and into our cars and things like that. And if you smoosh them, they stink. It's an apocalypse. And that's, yeah, right. That's a hyperbole too. It's a joke. <clears throat> apocalypse just simply means to reveal something. It means to unveil something. It means to disclose something, something that was hidden, to bring it out in the open so everybody can see it. And John is saying that what I'm writing to you is a disclosure. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Do you see that there at the beginning of verse 1? It's an unveiling, a, a revelation, a revealing, a disclosure of Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, it's obvious it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, there's two ways that you could read this. It's a disclosure or a revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. And that's certainly true. He gave it, it says right there, which God gave to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so we have God the Father giving this revelation to Jesus Christ, the Son, and Jesus Christ hands it to his angel, and his angel hands it to John and John is giving it to the church. And so in that sense, it's a revelation from Jesus Christ because he received it from his Father. But I think there's something else here that we would be missing if we say that's all it means. Because it's also the idea, a, a revelation, a disclosure, an unveiling of Jesus Christ in the sense that it shows us who Jesus Christ really is and, and it's all about Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, Jesus is the, is the object, not just the one doing the disclosing, but he's the, the one that's disclosed. He's the one who's revealed. And so that's why I, I say that if you try to summarize what the message of Revelation is all about, it's about that Jesus wins. Christ wins. It's all about Christ. And yes, all these other details are important, but they all focus and build upon the fact that Christ wins. He's the one that ultimately is exalted and honored above everything else. And so John is saying, I'm, I'm going to reveal to you and show to you who Jesus Christ really is and what his plan is for the future and how that impacts your life as well. He gives a promise to say, this is why it's so important to read this, but we're going to skip verse 3 for a moment and come back to it. But I want you to notice that in this prologue, John is emphasizing there are two big things that you're going to see 
in this book of Revelation. Two things that are revealed about Jesus Christ who wins everything and conquers all his enemies. The first thing you'll notice beginning in verse 4 where John introduces himself, states his readers, and he states who it is that he's talking about. And what we see here is that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that it is a reminder that he rules over all the nations, that he is the one who is in charge right now. He is the one who is in charge. Jesus is in charge right now. That's a message of the book of Revelation. That's important for us to see as well. And so when John says, I'm writing John to the seven churches that are in Asia. By the way, just kind of a reminder, this is the John who was the disciple who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. It's the John who wrote the Gospel of John. It's the John who wrote the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that are just a few pages before the book of Revelation. It's that John. And John is in exile on the island of Patmos off the west coast of ancient Turkey in Asia Minor. And we read about that in a few, uh, next week as well uh, in verse, um, verse 9 and following. And so there is John, and it says that he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Don't think about Asia as where China is. Think about Asia where Turkey is, where ancient, it was one of the territories of the Roman Empire. Ancient Turkey was called Asia Minor. And so that's where he's writing to, the, those churches that are there. And you're wondering, why did he pick those churches? Because they represent all the churches. And we'll talk about that in more in greater detail in the next three weeks. But it says here that John is writing to these churches. He extends grace to them, peace to them. It's a blessing that he's saying. And he's giving this blessing from three different people. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, it, and John, in a sense, by, by extending this blessing from the triune God, he's saying, this is also my authority. You know, I didn't stay up late and eat a lot of pizza and drink a ton of soda and then had nightmares. That's not where this came from, me and my vision. It wasn't that. But God handed me this vision. God spoke these words to me through an angel. I was in the Spirit on a Sunday and as I was worshiping God, I had a vision of this. And this message has come from Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just me. And so he says this, I'm asking for this blessing and peace to be upon you from, the, the seven, from Him who is and who was and who is to come, Almighty God. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And right away, some of you are saying, I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. How come he says Seven. We spent a lot of time the other week in our growth group talking about this. And the thing is, is if you look in the book of uh, Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, if you look in chapter 11, there are verses there that describe the different characteristics of the Holy Spirit. He's a spirit of wisdom. He's a spirit of power. He's a spirit of grace, etc. And as he's described there, he's also called the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And when you look at all those characteristics of the Holy Spirit described there in Isaiah chapter 11, that's the seven spirits, the sevenfold characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Seven's a number that often is used in Scripture that seems to suggest completeness, fullness, maturity. And so that's the idea here of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see those seven spirits later. And it's really talking about the Holy Spirit who are before His throne. And then in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn of the dead and rulers of the kings of the earth. Now, that's, that's what you see on Jesus Christ's business card. Can I put it that way? 
It says it here very clearly. This is who he is. He's the faithful witness. He's not lying to us when he talks about the future. Maybe we think that the powers and, and principalities and the forces of evil in our world are so strong, whether they're a, a political party in our country or, or some dictator ruling in some other part of the world or a disease or, or death itself, we think these things are so strong, but really Jesus is the one who is the faithful witness and he is superior to all of those things. He has authority over all those things. And so he's the faithful witness. He is the one who will always tell you the truth. You never have to worry about being lied to by Jesus. Not only that, it says that he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, firstborn doesn't mean that he was born first. Okay? It just simply is, is a title. It's an honorific title to describe the oldest son, the privileges that an oldest son had in the family. And in the ancient world, the oldest son in the family is the one who received the majority of the inheritance. He was the one who was responsible to care for his elderly parents. He was the one who was responsible to manage uh, the property that was, belonged to the family. He had these rights, but he also had these responsibilities. It was a position of power and authority in that family. And Jesus is the firstborn of the family of God. He has those rights and privileges and responsibilities to lead the family of God. And it says that he's the firstborn from the dead. Talking about his own resurrection, he has that authority and power because it's demonstrated by his resurrection. He's the first one who was dead and came back to life and is alive forevermore. Anybody else that had been resurrected in the past, people like Lazarus and other people, they, they died again. But Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead never to die again. He's alive forevermore. And so John is saying here that this Jesus, he's authorized this message just like the Holy Spirit did and just like God the Father has. He's authorized it. And he has authorized it because he's the one who speaks the truth. He's the one who's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the one who's the ruler of the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth are the ones that fight against Jesus. All the earthly governments, all earthly governments oppose Jesus. They fight against him. They resist him. And they will be vanquished by Jesus. It's the nations of the earth that will come against him at the last great battles. And they will side with Satan against the Lord. And the Lord will speak the word and they will be destroyed. He is the ruler over those kingdoms. It's important for you and I to understand this. Even as we vote in a couple weeks, it's important to vote. We need to research, make a careful choice, a prayerful choice, and we should make the time to go vote. We need to do that. There's no question about it. But Jesus Christ is the one who rules whoever's elected. Whoever they are. He's the one in charge. And we need to understand that, rest, and relax in that as well. This Jesus, he is the ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth right now. Not only that, look what it says. We have this relationship with him, this king who rules everything. Look how he rules over our lives. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. His blood representing His sacrificial death. He freed us from our sins and He loves us. Isn't that amazing? 
I don't know how badly you screwed up. I don't know how badly you failed. I think about myself, my failures, my faults. I, just recently, I, I don't know where it came from, but just thinking about some times where I really blew it and kind of was rehearsing it again, and I, I actually had to pray, God, I, I know I've confessed that to you, and I've, I've asked for forgiveness, and I know you've cleansed me. And just to be able to let go of that and the accusations because you see He loves me and He loves you. He's well pleased with you if you're His child, if you belong to Him. Have you ever embraced that? Have you ever held on to that, that God loves you that way? Well, He loves everybody. No, but He loves you. He loves you personally. He loves you and He likes you. That's important to know too. But not only does he love us, and that's something he's doing all the time, he's constantly loving us, but in the past he already freed us. He freed us by his own blood, freed us from our sins by his own blood. Through his death, through dying on the cross for our sins, yes is our substitute, he died our death for us so we could be forgiven and set free from our sins. You know what this means to be free from your sins? It means that you no longer have to pay the price, the punishment that's owed because of sin. You're freed from that. You don't owe God anything that, for that anymore. You don't have to be controlled by that sin anymore. You don't have to be held in chains by the shame of that sin anymore. He freed you from it. That's the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus is that he set us free by dying our death and raising from the dead for us. But even beyond that, notice what it says. He not only loves us and set us free, but he made us a kingdom. He's our king. And we belong to him now. He made us a kingdom. And not only did he make us a kingdom, but it says that we are His priests. We serve Him. And we honor Him that way. So, so think about this. On the one hand, we're royalty. I mean, that's pretty special. We're sons and daughters of the King. We're part of His royal family. But we've been also been given this responsibility. We represent God to the world. We have access to God that no one else has. We can go into his presence at any time and pray and pray for ourselves and pray for other people. And we can make intercession in that way and function as a priest in that regard. We can do that. It's a privilege of access that no one else has. But those who belong to Christ have that access. And not only do they have that access, but they have his authority because they're members of his royal family as well. See, that's the beautiful thing is not only is Jesus our king, but he's given us authority to represent him and rule for him in this world. And not only is he our God, but he's given us the privilege of having access as his priests. We can approach him at any time. This is Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing right now. This isn't anything that has to happen in the future. This is true right now. Jesus Christ is in charge of everything right now. And he shares that with us. He's given us his love, his forgiveness, his freedom. His authority and the access to Him to serve Him and represent Him to others. And that's our privilege right now. And it's because of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished in history for us. John says, my authority in writing to you and giving this vision, it's not from me. 
It's from Almighty God, the one who is and who was and who is coming, the eternal God, Yahweh. It's from the sevenfold Spirit of God that's before God's throne, the Holy Spirit. It's from Jesus who's accomplished this tremendous victory through his death on the cross and his resurrection and how he's conquered the evil one and he set us free. It's from him. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ I'm giving to you. And he is in charge of everything right now. Will you surrender to him, he asks. That's what he's asking. Will you surrender to that authority? But this revelation is not only about the authority of Jesus right now, but it's also a promise that Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's coming back in triumph. Think about it. I mean, this is kind of an obvious statement. We're getting closer and closer to the Christmas season. And when we get to Christmas season, we, we just think about Jesus as the, you know, the little baby there in the manger and Mary and Joseph. And he's so soft and he's so innocent and he's so cuddly and, and you know, just all of this, so, so frail and fragile because he's just an infant, you know, crying and nursing and, and uh, you know, just, just being there, cooing. And he's just a child, just an infant. And we think of him as his coming in such weakness and such humility. And he did that to enter into the human race, not to scare us or terrify us, but to become like us, to identify with us so that we could become like him. He's ascended into glory and he's coming back and it says that he's coming back in power and glory. And in verse 7, look at this promise. Behold, stop and pay attention to this. Don't miss it. Look and see. Look and see. Behold, He, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. This promise that's given in verse 7, it's reminding us, this is like the motto of the book. It's like the the summary of everything that's being said here. Okay, what is it that we're revealing about Jesus? He's coming back. He's coming back, and it says that he's coming back in the clouds. The, the picture is, is, like you remember two weeks ago when we were reading in the book of Acts, chapter one about the ascension of Jesus. He ascended into the clouds, and the clouds enveloped him and carried him off into glory, and we talked about the glory of God, the presence of God represented by those clouds, and I think, the angels there told the disciples in the same way you saw Jesus leave, that's how he's going to come back. He's going to come back in the clouds. And, and John, as he introduces this prophecy of the, the end times and the coming of Jesus, he says, well, I didn't forget that detail. He is coming back in the clouds. But this is something else that's just very powerful that we see in other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. By the way, did you know that more Old Testament quotations are found in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book? So it's a book that's heavily based on what the Old Testament has to say. But in this reference, John is picturing Jesus coming back like a mighty warrior riding his chariot. And so if you've, you know, if you've, if you've watched some of those old movies, like maybe like Ben-Hur and you see Charleston Heston, you know, riding his chariot in the Colosseum and all that, or maybe some of those other scenes, the Ten Commandments or other movies like that, and, and you see the chariots racing across the desert and the horses galloping and the riders are holding on for dear life and these big clouds of smoke coming up 
behind the wheels of the chariots as they race across the the dusty roads and the, the desert floor. Maybe you've seen a modern day war movie where you see the tanks moving across or the other, the other trucks and stuff moving across the, the fields of roads and the clouds of dust that just are cast up and thrown up when those vehicles are racing into battle. That's the picture here that John is giving is that Jesus is coming in glory and like he's on his mighty chariot and he's racing into battle to deliver his people and to vanquish his enemies to apply for all eternity the victory he has already won on the cross and through his resurrection. He's the mighty warrior racing into battle and the clouds of the dust are swirling around him as he does that. That's the, that's the imagery that John is picturing here. It's very vivid, very powerful, than just saying, oh yeah, Jesus took the elevator and here he is, descending an escalator or something like that. It's just way more powerful and vivid than that. The picture here is that Jesus is coming back in triumph. He is going to return, and he's going to return in glory to defeat his enemy. And it says that every eye will see him. Everybody's going to witness this, and I don't know how. You know, someone said, well, you know, if he's coming through space and the earth is revolving as he gets closer and closer, people will see him coming. Or maybe it's because of television. Maybe it's because of the internet. I I don't know, but it says that every person on earth will see him when he returns. There'll be no mistake. This is not going to be a secret return like some religions, Jehovah's Witnesses and others have taught, a secret, quiet return of Jesus. You know, no one's really going to know about it except when it didn't happen. In 1914. That's why you don't trust the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that way they've broken their prophecies have failed. This says that every eye will see him. Even his enemies. Even the people who pierced him. Even the people who nailed him to the cross. Who nailed him to the cross? Well, the Jews condemned him and rejected him and accused him. And the Romans sentenced him and actually did the execution and nailed him physically to the cross. And so when you think about the Jews and Gentiles that conspired to kill Jesus, it's really a picture of all, all fallen humanity. It's all of us. Who's responsible for Jesus' death? It's my fault. It's your fault. It was my sins that put him there. It's my guilt and shame that put him there. He died for me. So we can't blame anybody for it except to point the finger back and say, yeah, if the blame is anywhere, it's right here. It's my fault. And so he's saying that even all of fallen humanity who pierced him, it's a reference back to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, Psalm 22. It's a picture of his death on the cross, even those who pierced him. And it says that not only will they see him But it says that all the tribes of the earth will wail. They'll grieve. They'll sob and cry because they're witnessing Jesus coming back. Some people have said, some Bible scholars have said, well, maybe they're crying because now they finally get it. Jesus really is the king and they repent and they're trusting Jesus when he comes back. And that could be, but it's far more likely that they're seeing Jesus come back and they see that time has run out, that there's no hope, that they're lost. They see that the opportunity they had to trust in Christ and follow Him, they squandered because they rejected Him. 
That's my plea to you today. My plea to you is that if you've, if you've never trusted Christ, what are you waiting for? Why are you squandering the opportunity to put your trust in Christ and follow Him? And you're saying, well, I don't want to get into that water for one reason. Two, I'm living fine the way it is. Thank you very much. But the truth of the matter is, is that you're believing a lie when Jesus is a faithful witness. And you're facing death when Jesus is the one who's the firstborn from the dead, the, the, the keeper of the keys of life, eternal life. He can give that to you. He's, he's the one who rules all the nations. He, he's, the, he's the one. He's the one who loves you. I mean, really loves you, always loves you, even when other people don't love you. Even when you don't love yourself, He loves you. He, he's the one who frees you. He can set you free from the power of sin in your life. The guilt and shame of sin. The consequences of sin. He can free you from that. He did that through dying on the cross for you. Rising from the dead. He's the one. He is the one who makes you part of His kingdom. And gives you an opportunity, a purpose in life to serve Him as one of His priests. That, that's His plan for you. And, and why would you live your life without that? Without Jesus? If you reject Him, when Jesus returns, if you're alive at that time, you will be one of the people that will be crying and wailing and mourning and grieving because you see Jesus and you see that your opportunity to be saved is now lost. Don't put yourself in that position. Please, please don't. And they'll wail because of Him. Verse 8 just simply says, builds on it even more, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord. You know what Alpha and Omega are, right? Okay, you went to Greek school? Okay. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, like our letter A, the alphabet. Alpha, it's the first letter, letter A in the Greek alphabet. Omega is not Z, it's an O sound, it's a vowel. And that's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so he's saying, I'm the A to the Z. But he's, he's not saying I'm just A and I'm just the last letter, omega. I'm not just alpha and just omega. I'm everything in between. I'm the whole alphabet. I'm all that there is. I'm everything you need. I'm all of it. He says, I'm the alpha and omega. I'm everything you need. It's me, Jesus. I'm everything you need, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come. I'm the Almighty. I will make these things come true. No fairy tales here. No fancy theories or fantasies. This is the truth. This will come about because I'm the Almighty. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that that the truth that Jesus is coming back and He wins and He rules over all things right now and not only does He rule over all things right now, but He's coming back triumphantly in glory. What do we do with that? Well, John says in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. About 11% of the population in the Roman world were literate. The vast majority of people had to have someone read to them. And so when you went to church, they didn't necessarily have a Bible in a chair or a scroll that you picked up, and they certainly didn't have tablets or iPads for you to read. 
So most of people that came to church weren't carrying a Bible. They didn't have a book. But they did have a piece of parchment that was written by John, this prophecy, and someone in the church would stand up, a lector, and they would read. And they would read it out loud. And so you can imagine what a Sunday morning church service would like or if they met during the week at another time. You could imagine someone standing up, a man or a woman standing up in the church and reading it and then the people talking about it and discussing it. And, and one of the leaders there actually explaining, oh, no, no, wait a minute, I know these are a lot of different ideas, but I think this is what we need to settle on. This is what the Word says. This is what it means to expound it and to explain it in that way. You have the privilege that you, uh, there's an educational system in our, our country that teaches you how to read. I think God teaches you how to read. You struggled in first, second, and third grade to learn how to read. You struggled with that. And God gave you that gift so that you could read the Bible. Just like God built all the roads so you could drive the church. That's what I think. I'm serious. All the blessings you and I have are so we can worship Him and serve Him. Someone would read the Scripture and John says, blessed is that person that stands up and reads the words of this prophecy. Reads it aloud. But then it says, and blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who are paying attention and listening to this and thinking about what it says and don't write it off and don't blow it off saying, oh, that's too hard to understand or, or I'm too busy or I'm too distracted or if God only knew how hard my life was, He wouldn't be talking about this future mumbo-jumbo stuff. No, blessed is the person that pays attention when the Word of God is read. Blessed is the person who pays attention when they read the Scripture. Many of us struggle with reading. It's hard to read. It's difficult to read. But if we could just focus for a couple minutes on a couple sentences, God will bless that. If we could just listen carefully and praise God for the, the, the machines that we have and the technology we have, and you just hit rewind. Best thing on, on podcasts and, and other audios, just hit that 15-second rewind, 10-second rewind, and just catch what was said. And, and hear it that way. Blessed is the person who reads it aloud, and blessed are those who hear. But then notice what it says at the end of verse 3, and this is really what's important. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. The word keep is the idea of obey. You want to be blessed by reading Revelation? Obey what it says. Put it into practice. Apply it to your life. Structure your life around what it teaches and what it says. You see, the message of Revelation is that Christ wins. And if Christ wins, I don't have to keep giving in to sin anymore. I don't have to keep giving in and living in fear of other people. I don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen. I don't have to be worried and anxious about the times that I live in. I don't have to be afraid of the persecutors that are coming. I don't have to be afraid of that because I can stand up and know that I am on the winning side. And even if I lose my life now, there is a resurrection. And it's glorious because Jesus wins. I don't have to be afraid. You see, do you read the Word? Do you hear the Word? Are you paying attention to it? Do you obey the Word? We struggle with obeying it. We truly do. We struggle with, I struggle with obeying the Word of God. Why do we struggle with that? We struggle because I think I'm in control. And I think I can do what's better. I know what's best. That's what I tell myself. It's a lie. 
The truth is, is that Jesus is the faithful witness who was pierced for my sins so that I could be freed from my sins and now I can live a life that honors Him. He's the one who died in my place and He's the firstborn from the dead so I can live forever. He's the one that was crushed and destroyed by the governments of this world on that cross. Falsely accused, beaten and condemned, died, nailed to a cross. He endured all that at the hands of government, human government. And He rises from the dead, has risen from the dead rather, and He is Lord of all and He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords and He is in authority, has control and power over every government. Every government answers to Him. Because He's coming back as that mighty warrior. He has done this for us. Jesus wins. And if He wins, why in the world wouldn't I obey Him? Why wouldn't I join His side? Why wouldn't I trust in Him? Why wouldn't I follow Him? Why wouldn't I obey Him? Because Jesus wins. And His sevenfold Spirit is there to help me follow Him. And His Father who is and who was and who is coming, He's there to lead me too. But most of all, I rest in the fact that Jesus loves me. And He always loves me. And that will never, ever, ever end. Because Jesus wins. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks. Okay? I get excited. I hope you do too. I'm looking forward to it. All right? I encourage you, read, read chapter 1. Just spend some time this week. Read through chapter 1. Reflect on it. Just kind of go over what we've just read. Finish the rest of the chapters because we'll spend some time looking at the rest of chapter 1 next week when we get together. All right. I'll be out in the lobby if you have any questions. Maybe you have a question, you want a clarification on something. Maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ and you're saying, you know what, I'm tired of squandering the opportunity. I want to trust in Him now. And I'll be glad to take you aside and pray with you so you could believe in Jesus and trust in Him. And if you're thinking, you know, I do think I want to be baptized, well, can you hang around? And at the next service, we'll baptize you too. Okay? God bless you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you just for this, this introduction to the book of Revelation. I thank you for, for what you've revealed about yourself, Lord Jesus. I thank you that we don't have to sit in the dark anymore and wonder and speculate about who you are and what you're doing and what your plans are for the future. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are coming back as king, conquering, holding all evil accountable and, and putting it in its place. And thank you that you come to give that victory to us and our lives that we might honor you always. Lord, may we not only hear the word and believe it, but may we keep it. May we do what you say and bring glory to your name. Thank you, Father in heaven, for these blessings today. I ask you to go with us and direct us in all of this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.